Here's the deal with the U.S. infrastructure bill. A new provision has been added that expands the tax code's definition of, quote, broker to capture nearly everyone in crypto, including non-custodial actors like miners, forcing them all to KYC users. This is not a drill. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I have been working on a few longer reads recently. We're going to uh, have a full release of Tomer Strolight's uh, Why Bitcoin series, which is so great. Um, and I will probably will have that released with no commentary, no intro, no outro, just a full-on, basically an audiobook published in the feed, and I highly recommend it. Um, I'll let you know when that is on the way, but I haven't finished a couple of these quite yet, uh, and there is a super important topic to cover today that has kind of flown under the radar. This has snuck up on us, uh, and we've kind of had the privilege for years of ignoring this for a very long time, and I don't think we can afford that anymore. We will need the cyber hornets on this one. The new infrastructure bill in the U.S. It's in Congress right now is literally about to undo all of the progress that has been made in educating FinCEN and the regulations around KYC and AML, the anti-money laundering and uh, know your customer laws, the risks and the sensible obligations around those by going around it completely by making a really insane or incompetent, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it, it just makes no sense. But a change to what the definition of a broker, of what the, a broker is regarding the tax code. And we're going to read a Twitter thread on this. It's pretty short, obviously, uh, from Jake Trevinsky, since he is basically the go-to resource for this. He's so good at keeping up with this. And uh, also, Coin Center is really great for both keeping up with it and for fighting to try to make sure that stuff like this at least has some reasonable pushback. Um, and then I'm going to ask a favor of you in the guys take section when we kind of dig into this a little more. Real fast, though, I want to thank our lovely sponsors that keep the power on at this house, Shift Crypto. Uh, they, uh, they make the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. You know it, the hardware wallet that keeps your keys safe and sound from all the hackers out there and all the malicious computers that would want to steal them. Keep your Bitcoin safe with a hardware wallet, Bitbox O2. And then swanbitcoin.com slash guy. That's my referral link to the automatic no-hassle savings plan for Bitcoin. The simple, long-term, sound money savings plan. Check them both out at guyswan.com. They are right at the top of the page. But without further ado, let's go ahead and read the thread by Jake Travinsky, and I want to talk about it afterward. This is not a drill. Here's the deal with the U.S. infrastructure bill. A new provision has been added that expands the tax code's definition of broker to capture nearly 
everyone in crypto, including non-custodial actors like miners, forcing them all to KYC users. This is not a drill. The bill expands the definition of broker to include, quote, any person who, for consideration, is responsible for and regularly provides any service effectuating transfers of digital assets, end quote. Earlier drafts said, quote, even if non-custodial, and explicitly included DEX and peer-to-peer markets. This definition is so broad, it could apply to nearly every economic actor in the U.S. crypto industry if read literally. That includes proof-of-work miners and proof-of-stake validators since, quote, providing a service to effectuate transfers of digital assets for consideration seems to fit both. It might include a huge range of DeFi market participants too, like DEX liquidity providers, liquidators, protocol governors, etc. Depending what, quote, for consideration means, it might also extend to non-economic actors like node operators or wallet developers. The scope here could be massive. The tax code requires brokers to comply with IRS reporting requirements, most importantly that they have to give Form 1099s to their customers and file them with the IRS too. To fill out Form 1099s, brokers have to collect customer data including name, address, phone number, etc. This means brokers have to KYC customers to comply with IRS reporting requirements. As a result, the provision functions as a surveillance mandate, just like the one Secretary Mnuchin proposed in the final days of the Trump administration. As before, this is a very bad idea. As those who understand crypto already know, users are pseudonymous and access is permissionless. It is literally impossible for non-custodial actors like miners to get the information they need to do Form 1099s. In practice, this could mean a de facto ban on mining in the USA. This sounds insane, but it really might happen. Most crypto legislation goes nowhere, so it's easy to ignore. Not this time. This provision is part of the bipartisan and otherwise popular infrastructure bill, which is moving quickly through Congress and is highly likely to pass. What does crypto have to do with infrastructure, you may ask? Well, the bill has to include, quote, pay-for provisions to raise revenue for new spending so that it's revenue neutral as a whole. The, quote, broker definition is one of the pay-for provisions in the Senate draft of the bill. There are three main ways to raise revenue in a bill like this. Increase current taxes, add new taxes, or improve tax compliance. This allegedly falls in the third category, making people pay taxes they already owe. Congress thinks crypto is full of tax evaders. It isn't. The infrastructure bill is estimated to cost over a trillion dollars. Congress scored the new broker definition at $28 billion in added revenue. I have no clue how they got this number or how it's even possible to calculate. Regardless, this is no way to handle major new regulations. This is a deeply misguided provision that, if adopted, will do far more harm than good to U.S. interests. I'll give you my top five reasons why. First, 
It defies logic to adopt a regulation for which compliance is literally impossible unless the goal is to kill the industry. Second, it'll be a huge foreign policy failure. After China made the geopolitical blunder of forcing miners out of their country, most of us hoped the U.S. would take market share in this crucial sector. We can't make the same mistake China did. We have to stay in the game. Third, it won't work. For every new dollar of tax revenue, we'll lose two or ten as the U.S. crypto industry shuts down or goes offshore. And instead of getting more insight into taxable crypto gains, the IRS will get less as more users go dark on unregulated platforms. Fourth, it short-circuits the discussion we've been having with FinCEN. Since President Biden took office, FinCEN has done a ton of solid work on crypto AML regulation. We should keep that process going, not cut it off by sneaking KYC in through the tax code's back door. Fifth, the burden it'll place on civil rights is unacceptable. Our Fourth Amendment right to privacy limits how much surveillance government can mandate without a warrant. And in a post-SolarWinds world, the last thing we need to do is expose more sensitive information to a security breach. So what can we do? To start, don't panic. This provision isn't final yet and still can be changed. Even if it passes as is, it shouldn't take effect until 2023 at earliest. So at least we'll have time to try to undo it in Congress or the courts. This may be a long fight. If you are a U.S. citizen, call your members of Congress, especially Senator Portman if you're in Ohio. If anyone says, this won't help after we held off FinCEN and the FATF, I will lose my mind. Links so you can find your House representative or find your senator. If you are the leader of a U.S. crypto company and aren't involved in this yet, reach out to me or the team at at blockchain ASSN. After you call your members of Congress, your voice is especially important. Lastly, everyone top up your donations to Coin Center. They may need it. For my part, as usual, I will be working with the Blockchain Association and the DeFi Education Fund and others on a lawsuit challenging the provision if it comes to that. I don't think the courts will take kindly to a law forcing non-custodial actors to surveil U.S. citizens on behalf of the IRS. Things are moving fast, which can feel scary. But as it was with FinCEN's proposed rule, it's been amazing to see the entire industry come together this week to fight against this. We really do have some of the best and brightest on our side. Stay tuned for updates. All right, that wraps up the thread, and I really want to get into a guy's take on this. Uh, let's hit our sponsor really fast, and we will jump back in. In an uncertain environment like this, the most important thing you can do is withdraw your Bitcoin. And this is one of the reasons why I value Swan Bitcoin so highly is I don't need to withdraw anything from a custodian or an exchange because I have it set to automatically withdraw. I set the threshold of exactly how much I want to risk with a custodian with Swan Bitcoin, and as soon as it hits that threshold, they auto-withdraw to my keys, to my hardware wallet. 
Everybody knows what Swan Bitcoin is. Swan Bitcoin is the automatic savings plan. I buy Bitcoin through them uh, every single week, no matter what. And then a lot of times I'm also smash buying the dip or just happen to have some extra fiat lying around and buy a little bit extra in between or raise my weekly buy. But you can set it daily. You can set it weekly. You can set it monthly. You can set it for any amount you want. It is by far the best way and simplest way to stack Bitcoin, and they will automatically withdraw it directly to your keys for your safekeeping. Check out Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com guy for my referral. All right, be warned, I have a very strong opinion about this. And even though I'm going to talk about it, I think, I think Jake is right towards the end. Um, particularly because there has been, apparently someone has clarified uh, that this is only supposed to apply to businesses, but I think writing a law that is so broad that it could literally apply to everything, every computer, every node, every miner, and every service and wallet provider uh, in the Bitcoin industry, and then saying, oh no, it only applies to businesses, is just a way to get a law that applies to everything. Not only do I think limits should be explicitly stated, they should be explicitly stated and repeated in as many different types of language and said as many different ways as possible, because otherwise it will be broadly applied to anything that the Brad Shermans of the world want to apply it to. Case in point, the United States Constitution explicitly says the United States government, federal government, can do nothing outside of like 13 explicitly and strictly delegated things. They did everything they could not to use broad legal language. How did that turn out? Broadly written law is just a playground for tyrants. Now, I will start this off by saying I don't think this is maliciously written. I think this is ignorantly written. I think this is pure, deep ignorance of what the hell they are even talking about. And I genuinely believe that if this is applied as broadly and as easily as it could be applied, it would destroy the U.S. Bitcoin industry. The United States is already losing global relevance. They have been losing their dominance specifically to China consistently for a number of decades now, probably around 30 years. In my opinion, if this gets written into law as is and never gets shut down, that this would be the end of American relevance on the global stage in under a decade. And I don't, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. America has been in decline for a long time mostly because of the ridiculous micromanagement and misallocations of resources and monetary manipulation of the United States government and the fact that innovation in critical industries is being choked out. But the single saving grace was that the U.S. was not able to do the same thing they were about to do to Bitcoin to the internet. So by a stroke of luck, Silicon Valley ended up in the United States. But understand, they did try to ruin the internet in damn near the same way, or at least a very analogous way. During the mid, uh, or I think it was maybe, maybe towards the late 90s, really, mid to late 90s, when the internet was really starting to boom, and people were realizing that this was going to be a very important and very big industry, uh, there were ignorant politicians and proposed regulations legitimately considering 
that you should be required to get a license to host a website, to have a website. Imagine what the U.S. internet industry would be today if the government required you to register in your state or at the federal level, tried to implement arbitrary borders, required you to have some official licensing ID number and fill out government paperwork and wait for some regulatory agency to approve you so that you could start a blog or so you could have a social media profile. This was legitimately argued. I mean, we got lucky that it got laughed out, that it got shut down, but this was attempted. I think this restructuring of the definition of a broker to essentially include developers who just write software and non explicitly non-custodial services is as stupid of an idea as requiring someone to get a federal license to have a social media page. The innovation of the internet was that it was an open, permissionless communication network. Anyone could join and play, experiment, build, uh, participate. They could read anything they wanted. They could publish whatever they wanted. They could listen to stuff. They could, you know, remix a song. This is the entirety of why the internet was a breakthrough technology to begin with. It was merely the fact that it opened up the market to a billion people that had no ability to participate and the barrier of entry was too high prior to it. Raising the barrier of entry back up just destroys every bit of value the internet was going to create. It is the entirety of why the internet created trillions of dollars in value. And you know, even the trying to value there's actually been attempts at trying to value the internet like what is the internet worth um and it's it's kind of funny all the different ways that you can attempt to make sense of that because you know you can ask somebody what's it worth to you like what would someone have to pay you to never use the internet again and if you really think hard about that statement there's like youtube videos of people like being asked the statement out on the street and you don't realize just how much like, the internet is indispensable. Like it's almost saying, what would it cost to never consume any media again, never, never have a map to where you're going, never be able to schedule anything, never be able to, like, it's, it's, it's like literally saying, what would it be worth to you to shut down all communication? It's like, what's the, what's the point of having even a billion dollars if you can't use the internet with that billion dollars? But even if we just use like a, like a price model, what, is, what are we paying for the internet? What's the amount of capital on the internet? Um, uh, it's, it's somewhere around, well, I guess the, the estimate I read was somewhere like 2015 or something, so it's old, but it was like $2 trillion. But this kind of obviously hugely misses the mark just in how they try to calculate it. Because like, for instance, things like Uber are not considered internet revenue because it's a taxi service, essentially, right? It's a, it's a ride-sharing service. But how do you measure the value that Uber is creating without tallying it into the internet? Because Uber doesn't exist without the internet. And then how do you begin to value the thousands of things that we used to have to pay money for, the, uh, the items and products that we used to have to have, the privileged goods and information that's now essentially available for free to all of us very easily. 
you know, if we're trying to tally up the value of Wikipedia by costs, it's free, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't have to pay anything to go to Wikipedia. But to get the information that Wikipedia gives me today versus what I had available to me prior to the internet, the Encyclopedia Britannica set of, you know, set of encyclopedias for $1,000. Is Wikipedia worth $1,000? Is it worth $3,000? Because it's massively bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica set would have even been. I mean, it's orders of magnitude larger. Wikipedia has way more information than the a set of encyclopedias ever could have. And it updates and fixes itself all the time. Is it worth $6,000 or is it worth what I'm paying for it? Free. Zero. So there was an attempt I read about in 2017, I think. Uh, there's been a number of different like kind of studies. And the topic that kind of interests me is what is, the, what is the worth of the internet? And they tried to measure it in the concept of the value add. What is the quote-unquote consumer surplus that the internet provides by existing rather than not. And that was essentially what would be the cost of replacing all of these items that we now get, even if they didn't get them. Like, so like not everybody would buy a calendar, but how many more millions of people use a calendar because they get it for free on the iPhone or something like that. So they, they attempted to measure the consumer surplus. And this was, uh, again, it was a few years ago. Um, but, uh, they, they tallied it somewhere around like $8 trillion, $9 trillion. This is in an economy that is about $20 trillion a year. And then apply that to 2020. Think about what changed with the internet, our reliance and the value of the internet in 2020 and the overnight explosion of remote work. What's the value of someone who can work for a company in San Francisco and live in Ohio? How do you calculate that value add? Now imagine America without the internet. Imagine a country that did something so stupid as constrain, attack, and drive out every internet company at its birth because they didn't like the idea of people just publishing without a license. And even if they did it only for a year and then really rushed to walk it back, what would that have cost? Would Silicon Valley be in the United States? What would America be worth without Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Intel, Microsoft, Twitter, Square? I mean, hell, almost the entire list of the highest market cap stocks in the U.S. are basically internet and tech companies. All of that is specifically value that stayed in the U.S. because they chose not to suffocate an open permissionless network for communication. We actually have this opportunity again. And oh so serendipitously, China has just shot themselves in the foot by doing to Bitcoin what the US managed to avoid doing to the internet. Bitcoin is the internet for money. It is the open permissionless network that will make trade and value creation and payment systems as open and as easy to create as the internet did for publishing a blog or hosting social media. But these few lines of ignorance in an infrastructure bill that has nothing to do with Bitcoin, probably written by a couple of fools who just thought they were going to squeeze some tax dollars out of some Bitcoiners, 
could literally change all of that. You know, and I don't think they have any clue what this means. You know, I don't think they understand what the breadth of non-custodial uh, effectuating transfers of digital currency uh, even means. I don't think they have the slightest clue how much that can apply to if you actually think about it a little bit. And it doesn't matter how they mean for it to be interpreted, because if it becomes law, the Brad Shermans of the world will expand it to mean literally anything they don't like. The inclusion specifically of, quote, non-custodial software and services will effectively make these few lines a complete U.S. ban on any participation in an open permissionless monetary network. And that means any open permissionless monetary network. It essentially presupposes licensure and censorship on any value network whatsoever. Again, the quote is, any person who, for consideration, is responsible for and regularly provides any service effectuating transfers of digital assets. Lightning Pool is a non-custodial digital asset facilitator. Lightning nodes are, Bitcoin full nodes are, I receive and rebroadcast payments and transactions all day long on my home computer. Miners are, they are validating and confirming and stamping all the transfers of digital assets. Wallet hosting services are, AWS is suddenly now a effectuating transfers of digital assets if they host someone else's node. If you take this as it is written, it literally indicates every single computer on the network in some way because this law is clearly written by someone who has not the slightest clue how the network operates. The notion of having to file a 1099 for every payment or transaction that comes through my node is as stupid as requiring Google to file a government report with the name, address, social security number, and you know some detailed reason for why they're visiting the website to every single customer who does a search on their platform and clicks on a page. Google has effectuated the transfer of a communications connection and has done so non-custodially. They aren't hosting the other website, they're just facilitating the connection. So please, good user, fill out Form 19B and update your website history list on your internet browsing 1142A licensure form before Google is allowed to transmit the hypertext data to help you establish a connection to this website. The most hilarious thing about this law, though, is that they think this will get them more revenue. They probably called up Sherman and was like, you know, so Brad, how much tax evasion you think these nasty Bitcoiners are responsible for? And he's like, oh, probably about 28 billion. Yeah, it sounds about right. Okay, Nancy, write in 28 billion. We good. Thanks, Brad. That is probably the level of thought that went into this. The truth of the matter is that like requiring the ridiculous scenario above for using a search engine, they should consider themselves lucky if they only lose 28 billion in revenue over this. If they get zero it will be a miracle. What would you measure the lost revenue today if they had done this to the internet in the 90s? Google or Alphabet alone paid like $13 billion in taxes last year. Add the rest of that list I mentioned. You know, Apple, Square, Twitter, Facebook, Microsoft. Add all those companies together. What's, what's that extra revenue now if you chase those companies out of the United States? 
Now, I also want to clarify that I'm not worried about Bitcoin. For the same reason, if the internet, if they did this to the internet in the 90s, I wouldn't worry about the internet not realizing its potential. It would. It would just do it somewhere else. This is about the United States slitting its wrist or putting the knife down. If this gets passed and it doesn't look like it gets shut down and would go live in 2023, I have two years to get out of this country and take every dime of value I have with me because I will not live in that country. This place would become a shithole. It's already obviously in decline. It is already straining in every possible way, and our financial system is the thing that needs to be fixed. Our money is broken. Our financial system is broken and poisoned. The only solution to actually not drive this whole thing into the ground is if we have an open permissionless monetary network. If they essentially ban that, there is no hope for this country. In my mind, the United States is done. It's the end of the empire, had a great run. Thanks for coming, everybody. Where's the exit? Now, I want to address the idea of political engagement. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners, myself included, think wasting time on politics is exactly that. It's wasting time. The return on investment for someone who does not have a billion dollars and cannot lobby to have someone in a senator's face all day, every day, trying to infiltrate the government machine and actually fix it so that it's not this huge drain on society, I think that's, that's a pipe dream. However, running defense is a very important part of all of this. The one thing that we might actually be able to do is slow down the government. And I think like people like Jake, uh, Coin Center... Um, like these other companies, like I think they have done an incredibly good job and they have worked very hard and spent a lot of capital on doing exactly that. And this is not something that has no precedent. Like we, this is something the cypherpunks have always done. The cypherpunks have always put up a huge fight politically, legally, socially, and just in the, the concepts of civil disobedience by making them look like fools. I think we should be continuing that tradition in the cypherpunk way. You know, this is a large part. The cypherpunks were a major part of the reasons why, you know, the people who even suggested licensure for things on the Internet uh, were basically laughed out of the room. And it's also essentially 100% of the reason why encryption was actually made publicly available to everyone. The FBI unilaterally decided to redefine, very, very analogous to the situation we have right now, with the IRS redefining what a broker is, the FBI redefined encryption schemes as a munitions. Suddenly, and with almost no oversight, making a piece of software and a specific type of math problem subject to the Arms Export Control Act. But luckily, the cypherpunks, the cypherpunks fought the hell out of it. They, there, were, there were lawsuits, there were Dan Bernstein... Uh, kept up a lawsuit and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a handful of other people, or excuse me, institutions, and, and a lot of the cypherpunks and a lot of cryptographers donated to the cause. They rallied together and they fought this thing and eventually overthrew it completely in court. Adam Back was a big part of this. He was the one that uh, 
printed or did the Perl code on the bottom of the email so that all the cryptographers could basically boast the whole cryptography mailing list was in violation of the federal arms trafficking regulations every time they sent out an email. I actually told this story in my Bitcoin is or an unstoppable force at Bitblock Boom. The I told the story about like Vincent Kate, Vincent, Vincent Kate, who uh, spun up a website that boasted that you could become an arms trafficker in one click and it just had a button on it so that you could send a set of uh, PGP code from uh, I think it was the United States to a server in Anguilla. And then they had a public page where you could boast, you could sign your name and say, ha, look at me, I'm an international arms trafficker, according to the FBI. They purposefully violated the law and published themselves doing it to show just how evil and ignorant the law was. And again, they fought it. They fought it in court. They never backed down and they won. It's really almost crazy how often history rhymes. I think this is our encryption being redefined as a munitions. This is the IRS defining wallet software, nodes, developers, the open network of Bitcoin, the liquidity search engines. You know, that's what Lightning Pool is, essentially, that cannot possibly know who is or is not using their service or their software or the network in general as transfer effectuating services, as quote unquote brokers within this this open monetary system. And again, in clarifications and attempts to understand what the hell they mean by this, they've tried to say, well, this is a just this is just applying to businesses. But that immediately begs the question of what distinguishes it as a business. If it is effectuating transfers, but it's not registered as a business, is it now not liable because it's not a business or is it now an unlicensed business that is effectuating transfers? Again, broad legal language that can be interpreted a thousand different ways is, is a disaster. It's an industry killer. This could be the Bitcoin industry's interstate commerce clause on a rocket ship juiced up with steroids and snorting a line of cocaine. And this could take all of the value creation, all of the consumer added and benefit that an open, permissionless network for value in trade, all of those things that we think today are things you're supposed to pay for, that we, we're actually going to get for free, all of those services that come with control and privacy losses and huge risks to consumers because they have to soak up all of this data and stick it on some server somewhere that's just going to get, it's just a couple of years from getting hacked because that's how they all do. They're just giant honeypots for identity thieves. And we actually have the potential to solve these problems. We actually have the potential to run non-custodial services that never have to put customer funds at risk, that never actually have to take and store customer data that's responsible for literally billions of dollars in damages and insurance and everything every single year. We could fix these things. We could make so many banking and payment systems and the idea of financial services completely free and ubiquitous. Just like the internet has made calendars and Wikipedia and YouTube and search engines and any information you could ever possibly want at your fingertips instantly for free. We could do that for money and finance. And the value that could produce for the world, for the economy, 
is without question in my mind going to be greater than what the internet has done so far. And the U.S. right now has the perfect golden opportunity to be the leader in that new open permissionless global network as long as it does not let a handful of ignorant politicians put in a law that relegates the first and most secure open permissionless network for value and trade on the planet and relegate it to within the United States as a closed, permissioned, legally suffocated industry. They will have done the equivalent of trying to turn the internet within the United States back into the closed AT&T phone network. And Bitcoin will still explode. Bitcoin will still grow. Bitcoin will still be a fully open, global, permissionless network for trade and value. It will simply delegate none of that value to the United States. Way to go. This is why I do think it's valuable to make a donation to Coin Center, um, to the people who are putting up this fight. I think it's worthwhile to call your politicians. I, there was actually a good thread from Neil Jacobs. I'll have the link to this in the show notes. Uh, it has a number to call your senator, and it also has he has like little examples of like basic talking points um, to to reference. And I think he even had like a little template that you could essentially fill out or read. I'll be making a handful of phone calls probably every day. Just take some time and call in, make my case. Uh, I also, uh, the links that Travinsky put in this thread so that you can find your senator or your representative, I actually just made a redirect at guyswan.com slash senator and guyswan.com slash representative. That takes you to the links that Jake posted. Um, so that you can find them really quick. Uh, you can look them up. You can leave a voicemail. Then there's also resist.bot. A couple of people mentioned that in some of these threads, uh, which will essentially automate this process in sending an email. I have that redirect at guyswan.com slash resist. Now, I'm not going to take this lying down. I'm not going to just wait and see because I honestly don't want to move out of country. That's a big pain in the ass. Um, all the links to make a fuss about this will be in the show notes. And again, Guy Swan, Swan is S-W-A-N-N dot com slash senator slash representative slash resist. If everyone who listened to this episode just did that one thing, it costs a small amount of time for each of us individually, but being blasted with that many messages, emails, voicemails, whatever it is, could make a big difference on the receiving end. A thanks to Bitbox and Swan Bitcoin for keeping this show alive and supporting Bitcoin Audible. And to Jake Travinsky for putting this thread together and staying on top of it. He's basically my resource for this sort of stuff. Um, and it's important to remember, everybody, that we are in the right. This is an insane law. We will shut this down and Bitcoin isn't going anywhere. The question here is not whether or not we can save Bitcoin. It's whether or not we can save the United States from committing suicide and taking an innocent population down with it. The future is Bitcoin. The future is this industry and we will build it and we will solve these problems whether they like it or not. This is Bitcoin Audible. Thank you guys so much for listening and until next time everybody, take it easy.
This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.